Hello and welcome to the AV Forums podcast for Monday the 30th of May and joining me on this edition are Mark Botwright, a nine-year-old trapped in a man's body, news editor Mark Hodgkinson, good thing these guys aren't lumberjacks, audio reviewer Ed Selly, Chevy Nova and ass editor Steve Withers. Do you like penicillin on your pizza? Hello and welcome to the podcast. Steve, you seem a little bit off at the minute. Are you feeling all right, mate? You seem like you've given up and just had enough. <laughs> Lost all hope. <laughs> Lost all hope. What, what, what's wrong with you? No, I, I, I got married on Tuesday, so I'm ah, a married man. Makes sense. Again. <laughs> Your life is over. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, this, this, is, this is actually quite awkward because, um, I mean, my invite clearly got lost in the post. Oh, the truth. Nobody got invited, mate. Yeah. yeah. It was a spectacularly cheap wedding, so. Uh, KFC yeah. for the dinner? <laughs> we went to, went to a fish and chip shop, actually. <laughs> MC on <laughs> Dolby Atmos. The caveat, though, by saying it was the scallop shell, which is voted the best fish and chip restaurant in the country in Bath, and it is very nice. It's not uh, your local chippy, but um, that's where we went. Yeah, for <laughs> chippies. Yes, uh, awesome mushy peas. Actually, I had a really nice piece of cotton in, in batter and um, some fantastic <laughs> It was a delicious meal. So. You remember more of the meal than you do of the ceremony. Uh, it's only was just in the registry office, you know, it was all very simple. <laughs> it was very nice. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was obviously, it was a shame that the previous event was um, ended up being all celebration, no actual wedding, but uh, it was it was nice. And the weather was gorgeous. So we lucked out there. It was um, a beautiful sunny day. Honeymoon? Uh, no, I was back at work on Wednesday. This is, this is it. <laughs> I was the mushy on, peas was the high point. <laughs> back online by by Tuesday afternoon, <laughs> answering questions, and then went to we went to a pub quiz in the evening, and we won it. So there you go. And they say romance they is let dead. You win. <laughs> ah, to keep it nice and simple, eh? you, you don't need all the family there and all the rest of it, and then the fight in the car park and stuff. You know, yeah. you can do without all that. It's not a Scottish wedding. <laughs> it's tradition to have a fight in the car park with the two families. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, this is the last podcast until the 20th of June. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say we're taking our summer holidays. I'm taking my summer holidays. So that means nobody's around to record the podcast because nobody else can do that. So we're, we're not here for the next two weeks. But we do have some interviews for you. So the first interviewee is Steve. So the first interview, Phil, will be Dado Valentic, who is um, a colour scientist, which he'll explain at, at length in the interview itself. But he worked on Marco Polo. Um, basically, he's a colourist. Uh, he worked on Marco Polo and also on Exodus, Gods and Kings. Um, so um, very interesting uh, interview with, with Dado. And the second interview will be with Stephen Ald from Dolby, who will be talking at length about Dolby Vision. Yeah, so Dado's not talking at length. We only managed to get 20 minutes, a uh, busy schedule that he had. But uh, we're grateful that we got the 20 minutes because it is interesting. And uh, I think the Dolby Vision interview is about 45 minutes. So you'll get, the, you'll get one a week for the next two weeks, uh, released on a Monday. And uh, we will be back on the back on the twentieth of June for the podcast. So moving on, five star reviews and uh, Beer Hunter one two three. This is Ed's. This will be your pseudonym, is it? Beer Hunter one two three. No, 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 no. no. no I'm, I'm, uh, I, I don't, I, I haven't been been boosting our our ratings artificially. Okay. I'm relying on real people or something approaching real people. Okay. Informative. Ed's name is Beer Found, I think actually. Uh, informative and amusing every week. A great balance of chat reviews and opinion. You have me spend. You have made me spend far, far too much. That's a classified. That's nothing to do with us. Unless it's all of Mark's old cooking tips. You know, just burnt down his kitchen. <laughs> In fact, now's the perfect time to republish them with what the BBC is doing. Yeah, yeah. There's a gap <laughs> in the market, Mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, I'm just doing snack gadgets right now. <laughs> That's not uh, a euphemism, is it? No. <laughs> Count Jedi, AV to Roadkill, it's all covered. What a great podcast from basic to the more advanced, something for everyone. Adam Jack Jew, uh, Drew even, says, amusing and insightful. I walk to work looking like a complete... I missed the word, idiot. <laughs> idiot. Uh, laughing at some of the banter. Well done and keep up, some, keep up the good work, like Steve's magnificent transcribing skills, for example. <laughs> Yeah, you want to read some of his reviews. Witty 555, interesting, informative and entertaining news and chat about all things AV and some cat talk. Talking of which, mine's just come in, if you wanted to know that, Winnie. Okay, there we go. Uh, sorry, Mr. Borry, we'd have one for you. You can repeat one if you like. Uh, no, I'd rather not, thanks. <laughs> or you could even give one yourself. Yeah, oh, oh yeah. Well, the name that I choose may not be repeatable. <laughs> What are you talking about? It'd be Shen Mui something. <laughs> It'd be Shogun Assassin 745 or something. You know me too well. 
so thank you very much for the five star reviews uh, keep them coming we'll keep reading them out at the end of the month and their uh, current competitions um who am we going to go to let's go mr bot right right current competitions we've got the noon vr headset and that one's open to all members until 30th of june and we actually have some previous winners now Woo. yes woo indeed uh, the Pump Audio Mega Giveaway first prize went to Lauren Old, and we have a couple of runners-up prizes, which went to Bridget Willard and S. Bonnet. Okay, so that's the competition, so let's move on hardware news and uh, sled. Is that right? Cled. 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 C-led. C-led. Sounds like a glam. Oh, C-led. Glam Sounds rock like a rapper. Band. No, no, glam rock band from the 70s, I think. Sled, isn't it? <laughs> the tunnel of sled. I don't um, know. At least some of them would be in prison now if they were a 70s rock band. That seems <laughs> to be part of the course. Right, so C-Led, we saw this back in 2012 at CES. It was a concept demonstration. and it's uh, nearly four years ago. Yeah, four years ago, and we never saw it again. Uh, there is a video with you young, looking young but still bald, Steve, um, <laughs> on, the, on the site and on the article. Um, so this was interesting technology at the time, but then it just disappeared off the face of the earth, and um, suddenly it's reappeared, Mark. It has. It is back. Courtesy of, we must say that this isn't an announcement from Sony about a new TV. Uh, it was actually their commercial department um, who put out a release about this uh, canvas-style uh, display technology, and they've renamed it Cledis now, which sounds like some <laughs> nasty disease that you really want, <laughs> you wouldn't want to catch. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's it's based on the same technology you saw at CES 2012. Uh, at the time, Sony was um, talking it up as a competitor to OLED or even an, even though outstrip OLED in some ways and the fact that it'll go totally a lot brighter. Um, like OLED, it's a self-emitting technology so it can go completely switch off, doesn't require a backlight, can therefore go really black. Um, and this thing they've announced, it's um, well, the thing they're going to be showing is a huge canvas display um, made up of tiny, tiny little LEDs, uh, which are 0.003 millimeters squared in size. Um, it has uh, the capacity um, for 140% of sRGB. I haven't calculated that into Rec 2020, but it, it can't be that far off um, what we're seeing in the TVs at the moment. It's 10-bit color depth, um, near 180-degree viewing angle. Um, and this, now the canvas is made up of of smaller panels, so it's they're actually the, the, each individual panel is four oh three millimeters by four five three millimeters, and they stick them all together, and it would be used in commercial applications. So we made the leap that possibly, since this this technology, uh, don't, uh, don't drag us in here. You did. I made the leap <laughs> that uh, with um, with it being ready for uh, to be put out commercially in the first quarter of two thousand and seven that maybe, just maybe, Sony would adopt this for their TVs as a competitor to OLED and relaunch themselves to the top of the pile. Now, it is speculation because Sony, of course, have been quite conservative with their TV business now and it's all about the bottom line. But, yeah, it was something we'd really like to see or I would really like to see. I'll speak for myself. Um, as, as an interesting competitor to OLED and the successor to LED. So, I don't know, we might see it either. We might not. We might see it at CES 2017. We might not. But it's, it's, it's interesting technology. It whatever, all comes whatever. down at the end of the day to how much it costs to produce this stuff. Yeah. And I guess the, the plus point here is that their professional department has taken this technology on and obviously developed it over the last four years to a standard now where um, they're going to introduce it to the market. But if it's the professional side of the market, you're looking at 100, 200 grand. Easy. Oh, it'll be phenomenally for, expensive for, for these screens used for the advertising. So, you know, even scaling that down, you're still talking about a lot of money. And the thing is, um, it, it, it looks like, certainly looking from the outside at the minute, um, if Sony were to do that, then it, it would perhaps maybe kick things on display wise because um, I guess it goes against the, the depressing news that obviously Samsung are sticking with, you know, LCD TVs. I mean, they're calling it Quantum Dot and they're going to expand it and all the rest of it. But basically, at the end of the day, we're still talking about old technology that they're still trying to improve and still trying to fix the flaws in. OLED is still extremely expensive. You just have to look at the prices um, and, and the availability. You know, availability of OLED at the minute, it seems to be no one has them. Um, and they've all sold out the new models at the moment, Stephen. Trying to get a review sample is like trying to get blood out of stone. I've sneaking suspicion the reason that there haven't been any review samples of the E6. I don't think the G6 and um, B6 
have even been released in this country yet, but certainly the E6, they've been selling them as fast as they can make them. Uh, and I guess that's been a priority rather than um, dishing out review samples, which is a shame uh, because we'd obviously love to see it, having seen them at various shows. But you're right, Phil, it is... Um, it would be really, really nice if, if Sony could come along with something as an alternative to certainly LCD and as an alternative to OLED as well, as long as they could deliver it at some kind of sort of affordable price. And I think that's probably the issue. That was certainly evident when we saw them uh, four years ago, when we saw it four years ago. You know, it was impressive technology. It, it looked great. But they were adamant, you know, they were very clear this is only a prototype. We're just testing it. And I suspect the problem at the time was they couldn't make it in any way affordable. Um, and it's possible that's still the case if it's only going to be a professional product. But um, but it would be really nice to have something else shake up the market because at the moment, it, all the pressure was really on, on LG, who are the only ones that are investing, um, at least publicly, investing in this technology in OLED and um, and making all the panels. And if they've got problems with getting enough panels for their, you know, their units and everyone else is buying them off LG Display as well, then that's only going to filter back to making it difficult for Panasonic or for Philips or whoever else wants to do an OLED TV is trying to buy the panels off of um, off of LG. There's, there's a definite bottleneck in, a, in, a, in the fact that we've only got one manufacturer making them in the entire world, basically. I think one of the problems with OLED has been that the conditions you need to, to make it in, hasn't it? And it needs to be sterile with it being organic. They are uh, still too. incredibly difficult to make, aren't they? I so mean, whether, the LED, whether this would be easier or not and, and tooling up the factories, we don't know, do we? But it's speculation again, but it, it might be easier to, to make them because they, they won't need such um, sterile environments to make yeah, them cause, in. Yeah, because, you know, OLED is, is a living material. Yeah. Mm. Well, this isn't. Feed your telly, don't you, every morning? <laughs> 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 like like you had to gas your plasma, you got to feed the TV. Yeah, <laughs> a little bowl of water, just in case. Uh, no, honestly, don't put water on your television. That would be a very bad idea. Just to make that clear. <laughs> yeah, oops, that six thousand uh, pound all edge just gone up in smoke, Steve. <laughs> um, it'd be interesting to see. I mean, because although zero point zero zero three millimeters sounds very small. Um, it could be interesting whether they can actually how, how small a screen size they can actually make using um, C LED. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the screen was. So I think it was, it was 55, wasn't it? Was it 50, 55? It was 55 inch and it needed 6 million um, yeah. LEDs. So that was just a 1080p one, wasn't it? So you have four times that for a yeah. for a for an ultra HD set. That's a lot. That's a lot of little that's LEDs. A lot of LEDs. <laughs> I mean, that can't be easy to make, can it? Put each tiny one in. Not I mean, by hand. <laughs> when you, when you, no. <laughs> Very steady hand. No, I mean, when you think about the product, I mean, I always, always, I remember, this is years ago, but I remember going to see um, Toy Story 2. It was being shown uh, digitally. It was, a, I think it was the first digital screening. It was in London. Um, and it was using DLP. And this was back in 1999 or 2000. And I was explaining to my friend what DLP was, you know, and I said, these little tiny mirrors, millions of millions of tiny mirrors. And he looked at me like I was insane. And, and sometimes you think, how do they make some of this stuff? That Some of this nanotechnology, these tiny, tiny, tiny little LEDs or tiny little mirrors. You think that's bloody clever, really. <laughs> and then deliver it at anything approaching a you know, cost-effective price. Uh, and people still moan. So there you go. Right, let's move things on. Uh, let's go, Mr. Botwright, Xbox 1.5 rumours. Yes, this came uh, by way of Kotaku, who uh, verified it by a couple of sources, and then also there was an update from Polygon, and it seems like Microsoft are readying two new consoles, uh, revisions to the Xbox One. How much of this is to do with uh, PlayStation 4 and their, their Neo, their own kind of mid-gen refresh, and how much is to do with VR? isn't fully clear but we've got a code name and as always these things always come with cool code names um scorpio now why don't they just call them that when they release them better. yeah <laughs> i i know and it, this is well the weird thing is is that like if you consider something like the nintendo nx that's been rumored for so long that people now just so associate that with the console but it you know i, I always wonder what the board meeting's like when someone gets to come up with the code name you know, who puts forward these things? I'm imagining something like one of the, the early apprentice meetings where they come up with team names. But it's, it's yep, we've got Scorpio. Um, sounds like it'll be even more powerful than Neo, which is, this is sounding a bit like a superhero movie now. <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> I think one of the, the biggest things to come out of this is that um, could come with uh, Oculus support, Oculus Rift support. So it definitely sounds like VR has pushed things on because the... This generation of consoles was quite um, conservative even back in 2013. So the, the likelihood that they would last for, you know, kind of seven, eight years, they're always going to look long in the tooth long before that. 
So supposedly Microsoft would like to broker a deal for that. Um, and it, it kind of points towards this more iterative approach, you know, of just incremental upgrades to consoles, which last for, you know, a few years rather than, you know, try to push it beyond kind of five, six years. What the ramifications will be long term, it's, it's hard to say because obviously they'll plan to put in a certain amount, plan around forwards and backwards compatibility because you don't want to kind of completely fragment your own market. But of the two console revisions, Scorpio is the one that we probably won't hear about at E3 because with the, the tentative release period being put in the ballpark of late 2017, it would be a hell of a long run up to that. Um, but we should hear about a, a slim version of the Xbox One. So with the price cut for that, maybe we could see um, the same for PlayStation 4. Might get details of the new Sony Neo, might not. Um, but all things considered, it looks like uh, quite an interesting E3. Okay, so um, we'll look forward to hearing more about Xbox 1.5 and PS4 called Neo or Oh, PS4K is what people have been calling PS4K, it. PS4K, oh, that was the one. Which, yeah. That's more catchy. Yeah, I think that works. Yeah, okay. Right, let's move on. Um, Ultra HD TVs, uh, we've got another one in. It's a Samsung, and this time it's flat. Yay! Yes, flat. Um, as you probably are aware from previous podcasts, Samsung's uh, SUHD range this year does include both flat and curved alternatives, apart from the flagship model, the 9500, that is only available curved, which is a little bit annoying. But the uh, KS9000, the uh, sort of flagship edge-lit version, that's available as a curved, the KS9000 and the KS8500, which is flat. And we've already reviewed the KS7500, which is the curved entry-level SUHD model. And this is the, the flat entry-level SUHD model, the KS7000. And as we have been saying, and, and as Samson had told us originally, I mean, from my experiences to date, they are identical. I mean, aside from the shape of the screen, obviously. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's exactly the same television. Its um, performance is identical. Its architecture and design is identical. I mean, they are basically the same TV. So I think that's good in the sense that if you want flat you've got the option of flat and if you want curved you've got the option of curved and you aren't losing anything between the two um other than the shape of the screen the only feature that is on the curved screens that's not on the flat screens is auto depth enhancer but that's a feature that was designed for the curvature of the screen and therefore it would be no point having it on the flat version um, but otherwise it's a really good solid entry-level television uh, we've got the 55 inch version but there are obviously a number of screen sizes the, and you know it does everything you could want for a 4K Ultra HD TV, it's Ultra HD Premium certified, uh, which means it can deliver up to 1,000 nits of peak brightness. Uh, it's got a 10-bit panel, and uh, it can hit over 90% of DCI-P3. And, and in terms of uh, general use, it's a fantastic TV. It's, it's, it's got a nice picture. Local dimming is very good. Uh, color accuracy is good, particularly with X709. Um, it's got a, a really interesting, um, the, the new smart platform has been revised quite a bit by Samsung this year, um, making it significantly different from last year, actually, and a big improvement. It's, more, it's simpler, it's got more recommendations, but it's easier to access what you want to access and find what you want to find. Um, the, the auto detection system works very well, so if you plug a new device into the HDMI, it detects it, and if it's in its database, and most things are, then it, um, it basically detects it, identifies it mentions you know names it as such on the input and then you can do basic controls using the remote the smart control is very effective nicely designed sits in the hand really well very comfy to hold uh the design itself is a little bit uh, prosaic you know, it's for, for samsung it's a bit boring you know it's it kind of looks like any other generic tv these these days with um, little feet at either end so obviously there's no swiveling in, involved you know it's got um Feet. So you're going to have to have a platform or a surface on to put it on that's going to be basically the entire width of the television. So bear that in mind. But otherwise, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a solid, very good. Um, I'd say entry level, but obviously the, there are lower um, models that are SUHD. But as far as the SUHD range goes for Samsung this year, this is the entry level model. Um, so if, if flat is your preference, and for a lot of people that is the case, then this is definitely worth looking at uh, as an alternative to the curved versions. What's Mark, it priced you... in relation to the seven five hundred? What's, what's the price? Let me just... oh, and again, it's it edge lit, bottom lit, top lit. It's um, it's edge lit. So at the sides. At the sides, okay. And uh, how how did it hold up with HDR stuff then? Well, as with the seven thousand five hundred, um, 
you know, when you're watching normal content, SDR content, um, uh, the local demo is very good. And, and when you set the backlight to relatively low level, very good even backlight uh, and very good black levels and, the, and minimal haloing. Once you go to HDR, clearly everything's jacked up to the max and then it becomes more, more apparent. I, although having said that, I've got to say that uh, I actually thought, and this is, I mean, I wasn't doing a direct comparison, so it, it, I thought the HDR looked slightly better on the flat version than it did on the curved version. I was getting less of the, uh, of, of sort of, because because of the way the um, the backlight is positioned, you can get um, bright bright sections in the uh, in black bars and letterbox films, which are the majority of the HDR films I've got seem to be letterboxed. Um, that was that seemed less apparent on the flat version than it did on the curved version. So that's a that's a positive, I guess. It might just be my imagination. I mean, I wasn't comparing the two directly. I've always found but, the light distribution better on the flat ones than the. Um, yeah, and good. I think that might well be the case. I mean, that's probably goes completely against what Samsung was saying a couple of years ago when they first introduced curved screens. But I think the flat the light distribution did seem better on the flat version well, to it's, me. It's hard and, to, harder to bend light, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> quite. <laughs> um, and yes, I mean, I don't. I think everyone will agree that when you're talking about HDR, edge lighting is not the best approach to it for obvious reasons. Um, having said that, I thought I, th- I do think that the, the way Samsung are distributing light behind the panel, given its edge lit, is is actually very effective. And for the majority of HDR content, it works really well. The only time is it when it's more obvious is if you've got like a dark scene. So, for example, the beginning of Mad Max Fury Road does some scenes and some tunnels where you've got sort of a lot of darkness, but then shafts of light and then you get the columns of light more obvious they're more obvious and you've got sort of light patches in the black borders um but for the majority content actually it looked really good uh and so you know i think if you're looking for a uh, a competitively priced ultra hd 4k tv with hdr um you know this is definitely worth considering and you do have the option of curved or flat if you have a preference and which is also nice to have and, and like i said at the beginning it's a real shame that they don't give you that choice with the flagship uh, which should be coming soon, uh, you know, and, and that's got a full array backlight. So it would be nice if the 9500 was also available as a flat option. Which is a yeah, but they're, they're, they're in too deep now, having <laughs> expended the, uh, the, 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 the blood and treasure that they have on telling us that we all need to be curved. It would be a massive, massive and probably unpalatable climb down. Actually, here's a flat one. <laughs> <laughs> what was really obvious was at CES, um, a lot of the meetings that we go to um, are actually off the show floor and in um, areas that are also shared with um, dealers and buyers. Because it's not just the press that goes to CES and tells the world what's going on. All your buyers for all your major retailers and everything else, they all go out to CES. And they have much better free food and free drink and they're treated a lot better than the press are. And they have huge areas off the show floor where all the models are available to see. Um, and you know these dealers and buyers can go around and choose which models they're going to have in their ranges and their shops and so on. And we got the opportunity to walk into the Samsung's room, Steve, didn't we? And um, yeah. not allowed to take any video or anything else, but the thing that hit me straight away was the split was 50-50 flat to curve, which I, I, I found really surprising for Samsung. It's not the case last year, I don't think. No, no. There were very few flat flat models compared to the curves yeah it was a 50 50 split and that really stood out for me when we had a quick walk around that room yeah i have a sneaky suspicion we'll see a lot more flat and a lot less curve next year i mean you're right ed it'd be a massive loss of face for samsung to say actually you know what curve hasn't really panned out we're going back to uh flat they'll do a gradual progression but the, certainly anecdotally i don't i don't think if you read the forums for example you know and these are people tv enthusiasts in our readership there's very little love out there for curve. People, most people prefer a flat screen. When I was, I'm reminded of when I was at BT Sport and they were using Samsung um, TVs in the room we were in to, to, to show the Ultra HD broadcast that they were doing at the time. Um, they were flat models. And I said, I see you're using flat models. He goes, yeah, well, you know, pictures are flat. I don't want curved lines on the screen and stuff like that. So clearly even the you know, professionals had no interest in, in using flat uh, curves models. So I would be very, wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised at all to see um, next year's models skewing heavily towards um, flat. I just wish that they would give the option of a flat version for the flagship model. And in answer to your question, Mark, about pricing, interesting, if you go into Curry's or John Lewis to buy the KS7500, uh, the curved model, it'll cost you £1,699, that's for 55 inch. If you go for the 55-inch KS7000, the flat model, £1,499, so you save yourself 200 quid as well. So that's a no-brainer. Yeah, <laughs> get, totally. get the KS7000. I, I think curved screens are going to go down as um, 
uh, and also run uh, when we look at the technology in terms of broadcasting technology and TV technology as it's evolved over the years. I think it'll be one of those little oops. What were we thinking of? Um, so that neatly brings us on to um, obviously the Euros and the Olympics coming up, and and round about the Olympics and the Euros, more more the World Cup actually than the Euros, um, is TV innovation and new TV technology being tested and. We've seen everything from widescreen SD broadcasting to uh, 3D to HD being introduced and now obviously 4K and the Olympics in 2020 because they're in Japan and NHK are the the national broadcaster in Japan. Even rumours that that is going to be shot in 8K. Um, So we've seen a lot of TV innovation. Steve, give us the the gists of... uh, Because for a long time it was 4x3 um, and we didn't get colour until... What was it? The early seventies, late sixties, forty. Yeah, it was my actual year I was born that we got color TV. Yeah, I mean, if if you go back, what's what's interesting? I mean, for those of us of a certain age, and I think that's most of the people here, we remember the older days of television when it was, um, you know, a standard definition power system, four to three. But if you go back far enough, um, when TV started in this country, which was in the nineteen thirties, mid nineteen thirties, nineteen thirty six, BBC began live broadcasting. Uh, television, and that used a 405-line system. So it's actually 377 actual lines of information, you know, interlaced uh, using um, uh, 50 hertz with 25 frames per second. So that was what was launched, and that was what uh, they used in the beginning. That was actually called, at the time, high definition, because the previous system was 240 lines. So they'd, they'd almost double the number of lines, and it was high-definition television. Even back then, they were using that phrase. Um, and that system, interestingly, continued to be used right through until, I think, 1985, before they actually turned it off because the um, it used a, a VHF signal, and there was wider geographic coverage. So there were some parts of the UK that still didn't get the UHF coverage of PAL until the mid 80s and that's when they actually finally turned that system off i think when we talk about some i'm talking about like you know tiny little islands north of scotland <laughs> that didn't have any broadcast at the time but that system that 405 line system was used um in the uk right through until the 60s it wasn't until 1964 bbc began bbc2 was launched and that used pal which is the system that we continue to use today. And that's a 625-line system with 576 active lines interlaced again um, using 50 hertz. That didn't come into the mid-60s. And BBC Two, again, was the first to broadcast PAL in colour uh, in 1967. So when the 66 World Cup happened in this country, uh, we were still predominantly using BBC One and ITV were still using 405-line black and white. Um, it wasn't until the following year that um, we had colour PAL on BBC Two. And then 1969... BBC One and ITV switched to PAL colour as well. So, you know, from 69 onwards until, you know, for the next 30 years at least, that was a dominant um, technology in this country. We am, had I, colour, am, I writing, PAL. am I right in thinking that David Attenborough was behind bringing colour? Yes, he was a, a controller of BBC Two. Yeah, that's what I thought. And the reason that they uh, started broadcasting Pop Black, the snooker, was entirely because of uh, colour broadcasting. Yeah. It was, you know, something that clearly they could use for testing and show off the whole colour aspect. I mean, it must have been interesting watching football black and white. Um, you know, if teams had quite similar shirts. I guess they must have deliberately made shirts, um, not so much colour different, That's but also the design different. Away strips. Yeah. For the TV. Mm. So they could differentiate the teams in black and white. So, you know, so four to three... Standard definition, PAL, colour, uh, mono, audio. That was it from late 60s right through until the mid-80s. I mean, we had the same system. The only real innovation in that period that was that came along was um, Teletext, which came along in the 70s. Uh, do you ever you remember waiting, if you missed the page, <laughs> to wait <laughs> to get rebroadcast? Oh, the, the football results, yeah. I used to sit watching and, that. And, yeah. and because it was the Scottish results I wanted, I had to sit through seven or eight pages of... Because they went through all the div- English divisions and then all the the non-professional divisions that before they even came to the Scottish Premier. Um, ah, so it was done yeah. in order of quality then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably right there. Ed. <laughs> Sorry, that was a low blow, but I well, I'm going to stop bullying Steve now, and I'm going to start bullying you. All right. I um I think I think it's probably for any younger listeners out there, it's probably hard to imagine an age when. Um, Teletext was considered, you know, that was the information technology age for us, waiting for the same page to be broadcast, literally broadcast. I mean, it was more robust in the way that if you had 
you could have you know, millions of people watching the same thing and it didn't slow it down because it was being broadcast but having information in in um being broadcast one after the other i mean there were tvs that later came along with, with small memories in them so you could actually save the pages and then find the one you wanted quicker but they being broadcast you had um four well three channels until 1982 wasn't it when um yeah channel four, four yeah because yeah. um, the uh system only only actually allowed for four channels so we didn't have we only had four channels we had three until 82 and then we had four until i think it was 97 when channel five came along using spare frequencies on the existing channels but you know we had, so hardly any channels they didn't broadcast 24 hours a day there was no internet it, text was the closest that we had if you wanted to because if you didn't if you wanted to find out the football results and you didn't want to wait till the next scheduled news program the only way to find it out was literally to go onto Turtex, wasn't it? There was no other way of finding this information. Well, well, there was this other invention, Steve, called radio. Well, no, but again, that's you'd assuming that there's a... What I mean is you could use radio or TV, but you had to wait to a news broadcast for someone to tell you what the results were. Or yeah, watch five the te- live, then, teletype. Remember the teletype on... Um, <laughs> on um, I on- miss that noise. <laughs> I still think that final score... I know that there's no requirement for it to make that noise anymore, but it bloody well should. Yeah, what was it? It used to come through because um, Saturday afternoons used to be fantastic when I was growing up. Because um, you know the whole family would go and do the shopping, and it'd be my, me and my grandpa and my youngest brother we would be sitting watching um, the wrestling on the afternoon. What was it? World of Sport or something? Or Dickie oh, Davis? Yeah, World of Sport. Yeah, and uh, oh, Saturdays used to be brilliant for that kind of thing. And then you had the foot, like you say, Steve. You had the football results with the ticker running away in the background and. Uh, um, followed, followed by the pools. Followed by the, the pools, pools news, yeah. Pools <laughs> news. Did you know Jimmy Hill was responsible for Dickie Davis being called Dickie Davis? Because Dickie Davis isn't called Dickie Davis. I only knew that because I watched a documentary about him the other night. Yeah, snap. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, sorry, his name's not Richard Davis then? No, I can't remember what it really is, but Jim, Jimmy came up with the, uh, the idea yeah. it should be called Dickie Davis because it was more catchy. <laughs> uh, yeah. It so, is. I mean, once once we hit the 80s then, obviously talking about TV and, and quickly, uh, that's where things really started to take take shape because, believe it or not, HDTV was available um, in the late 80s. Well, the first um, the first World Cup, at least, that was bro- was uh, recorded and broadcast in high definition was the Italian, Italian 90. That was actually done by RAI, which is Italian broadcaster and NHK. They did test uh, recording and broadcasting in in, H- in HD. So that's back in 1990. Yeah, the, um, and on YouTube you will find um, stuff that was shot in the late 80s in HD, and obviously you can watch it now on YouTube in HD. It's really quite yeah. interesting. Yeah, there's official FIFA movies that are really good. Well, a lot of that stuff was shot on film. So some yeah. of those FIFA movies look amazing. I remember they broadcast a lot of them last. When was the World Cup? 2014. They, they showed all those FIFA movies in high def. And some of the stuff they were showing looked stunning because it was shot on film back in the yeah. 50s and 60s. Um, don't forget, obviously, up until 86, we were all listening to stuff in mono. And then we had Nikam stereo coming along, which was a digital format, which is another that, first. That was, that was such a big uh, oh, shot in the arm for home cinema. It, it was to tell my first system, it. home cinema system, revolved around a Nikam stereo VCR. Yeah. Um, piped into an amplifier and a couple of speakers. That was where that's where home cinema began for me. I mean, I got I, I rented a VHS Nikam stereo <laughs> tape deck, had a you know four to three color telly. Well, the best uh, the best one was the Mitsubishi uh, VHS machine, and it had um, uh, VU meters and stuff on it as well. It was really advanced well, for the time. I put, a friend of mine came around and I plugged it into the you know, my NAD's um, stereo my amplifier and a couple of mission speakers, and he came around. And I put on a Roger Waters uh, VHS tape, um, you know, Radio Chaos um, music videos. And they were, um, you know, in, in stereo, night cam stereo. Put that on, and he, we were gobsmacked. It was just, wait a minute, this is this is a whole different level. And that's where it started. It was started in '86. I mean, all, all through the '90s, it, it was a case of the sound just got bigger and bigger and bigger because Laserdisc then went to Dolby Digital, and then DTS. And I always remember I was I was so into the audio for a long time because the TVs were tiny. I mean, even back then, when I had probably the best system I had. It was on a 32-inch widescreen TV. Yeah, 32-inch um, was massive, huge, huge and, back then, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, yeah. they were huge. I mean, that was that was in part part of yeah, the issue. Yeah, the tubes. Yeah, and, and I'm I mean, glad there, I was there. Was a um, was a, there was a, a I imagine a 32-inch CRT widescreen at the dump the other day when I was dropping some 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 rubbish off, and you you just forget how how much television 
was required to support that <laughs> screen. Yeah, I'm just glad I wasn't a TV reviewer back in the day because... Oh, God, it's about I, 80 I, kilos, weren't it? Oh, jeez, can you imagine them getting them up? Oh, and unboxing it on your own, guys? You couldn't do that, <laughs> no, could you? Well, you? well, you couldn't. You physically couldn't move some of those teams no, on your own. No, you, you couldn't do that. I mean, that so. was the big the big shift after, after sound. You're right, sound was head of picture for quite a long time, and it was a move to widescreen and then high definition that well, was Well, we were, we were first to go. Europe was first to go. Certainly, the US took a long time to go widescreen. Um and the other thing was that we brought in, or, or certainly for the bigger screen TVs, um, rear projection became a big thing for a, a long time. Um, and I remember shelling out £4,000 on a Pioneer widescreen rear projection TV that was the size of a piano. It was massive. It blocked out the light in the living room. It sat in front of the window and blocked out all the light, which obviously if you're watching TV is great, but... Um, this thing was massive. We needed a, t- a special uh, piano, guys. I, I didn't tell the guys that were delivering it. <laughs> they said, oh, it's free delivery. I said, oh, great. I didn't tell them it's six flights of stairs on a, a spiral staircase <laughs> to get up to the flat. Um, and then, obviously, when, when we were moving and moving out of that place, I had to get the, um, I for, forget, the, is it Pickford's, the removal firm? They had yeah. to send their piano team <laughs> round to, to pick it up and take it down the stairs again. I mean, um, they were capable of great results, but most people's enduring memory of them was in like pubs and stuff where they'd been set up by someone who'd been on the well, source for well, six or seven years. Well, funnily enough, that TV, when I sold it, I sold it to one of the local pubs um, <laughs> when I had to get rid of it because I was moving down this with this where I am now and I, there was no way I could store it and all that. I actually sold it to the local pub and it was there for about 10 years afterwards. Isn't it interesting that... Uh TV broadcasting sort of remained the same for so long, but then once things started to change, the, rap- the change was pretty rapid. So, mid '80s, you start moving to stereo sound. By the mid by the '90s, we're moving into high definition and, and widescreen TV. Um, so, 16 to 9 aspect ratio, and then you know by nine by the late '90s, we hit digital, and then everything changes. Basically, you go you know the first um, I think the first digitally um, broadcast tournament for the world cup was the 1998 tournament in in france by then we'd we'd had digital uh terrestri- sorry satellite digital broadcasting and then pretty soon after we had, we had terrestrial digital broadcasting so not only did you get widescreen uh not only did we start to see the advent of high definition but obviously we, we suddenly we went from four channels or five channels to hundreds of channels um and problem didn't become you know what what we got to watch but we had too much to watch although i've got to say a lot of those channels were rubbish and unlike the bbc who at least said okay we're introducing a few more channels but we're going to concentrate on picture quality uh and with minimal compression a lot of the channels that arrived looked far worse than they ever could have done in oh, the, oh the early days of sky um terrible just slightest bit of rain <laughs> um and you got speckles all over the screen, and, and then the picture just disappeared if it got heavy rain. Um, and that, that was for a long time as well, until we, we got proper, um, you know, the, until they really improved the LNBs and, and, and the delivery system. But early days of Sky, and I did buy into Sky very early on, uh, the image quality was terrible. It's funny uh, looking at Sky because I was reading about their history, and, and you kind of forget because they're so massively dominant now in terms of sport and particularly football. Um, as a broadcast, obviously not the World Cup and, and the European Championships because they're they're, they're saved for um, you know mass broadcasters like the BBC, public broadcasters like the BBC and ITV. But certainly for things like the Premier League, um, you know they've dominated that since '92 when they paid what was it something like uh, 304 million quid back then. I mean I, I know they're paying billions now, but that was yeah. a lot of money in 1991. Well, the other um, thing was when the BBC and ITV covered football and and even international broadcasters for these big tournaments, there was three cameras, four cameras at the most. And it was Sky that really pioneered the whole use oh, yeah, of they, they pitch side cameras and you know eighteen odd cameras and slow mo and all the rest of it and instant replay from about six different angles and goal line technology and all the rest of it. Um, they really pioneered it and kicked it on, and the BBC and ITV and everybody else had to catch up with them. They they, they really did. did push it. I mean, they they used it as a gateway to get subscribers because they they were really really struggling. And both, but obviously, if you go back far enough, you had Sky and you had BSB, British Satellite Broadcasting BSB. They were both in massive trouble for years, lose hemorrhaging cash. Hence the reason why they merged and became B Sky. <laughs> yeah, a merger in the merger. same way that the, the knight who had his arms and legs cut off in uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll call it a draw. It's the merger in the same way as Germany and Austria in 1938. I think. <laughs> you know when I um. Used to commute into London for years and years and years near um, uh, Wilston Green. 
and um, was I mean obviously we're talking this century. There was a house that still had a squareal on it. <laughs> I can only assume that they just they weren't getting any broadcast. Then, were they? Were no, they no, just just kept it for prosperity. Yeah, <laughs> so it's, a, it's, it's you know a museum piece. So anyway. Yeah, they were struggling even after the you know merger and in inverted commas. You know, they still struggled. It was football that basically saved them and gave them a subscriber base. And you're right, Phil. I mean, whilst you may not necessarily approve of a single broadcaster having a near monopoly on, on, on football broadcasting in the UK, they did use that monopoly to push technology in in you know high definition, multiple cameras, um, replays. I mean, things like on 3D things and, like, um, and the PVR even the PVR with Sky Plus was a, was something that came via them. Well, the big the big red button thing. That was that was a big thing back then, red button, where you could actually follow certain players, and there was a camera would follow yeah, a player for a, that. <laughs> for a certain uh, length of time, and then they would change to another player. So and some you, player sort of picking his nose and scratching his balls. Yeah, <laughs> Not really just, what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, but it, if you were interested Gothic, in that yeah. kind of thing, and and the other thing was like the catch up, so you would have, and it'd be on a loop. So if you'd missed the the first half, you could quickly go and watch five minutes of highlights and watch the goals that had been scored at that point, and then catch up with the game. It was, innovative things like that that they brought in which um, yeah. you know was was really useful sorry Mark who was the first with the PVR then I believe TiVo were first on, uh, in the, the States co- no in this country but, really? but yeah, yeah I remember TiVo being on sale before Sky Flats and then also Sky didn't help themselves if you I, I don't know if anyone remembers some of the early advertising for um, Sky Plus it was Firmly in the M. Night Shamalamalan school of, of, of pr- production, it was incomprehensible and it basically suggested that the box did it by magic. Mm-hmm. And people were like, mm, Do you know what? <laughs> it's, it took ages to sort of guess what the whole thing was about. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a short sighted move, but mm-hmm. yeah, obviously very important. I, I mean, it, it shows you how important it was because people referred to things like, uh, Did you Sky Plus it? Yeah, you know, I mean, that, maybe they weren't the first, but they definitely they popularised it. Popular yeah, one, totally. But they weren't the first. Uh, okay. Uh, 2006 World Cup in Germany was the first tapeless uh, events, the tournament. So everything was digital. Um, there was a media server and the broadcaster just accessed that to get hold of the footage. There was no um, analogue or tape you know, um, recording at all. It was all, all digital. Um, and then obviously moving forward to 2010, a little foray with 3D that didn't did do so well. That was the first. Uh, the South African World Cup was the first and the last to be filmed and broadcast in 3D. And moving on to now, of course, we we had uh, Ultra HD uh, 4K um, testing being done at the two, 2014 World Cup in Brazil. Um, this year, um, um, this tournament, the uh, the Euros um, in France, we've got um, I think the uh, definitely the quarters, semis, and the final and the opening match are all being broadcast in Ultra HD. 4K. So depending on where you live, you'll be able to watch that in 4K. In fact, because some of the European broadcast satellite broadcasts already are broadcasting in 4K. Uh, not in this country, unfortunately, not yet. But um, but that that's that's the, that's already a reality. That's already happened. So really, you know, in terms of where we are at this point in time, we've gone from you know 405 lines of black and white four to three mono TV to uh, you know widescreen ultra HD. Um, uh, 50 50p and that's not let's not forget that's an important factor if you can increase the frame rate and progressively do it progressively then you're going to get better motion for things like football which is going to make a big difference in years to come when they move to 100 100 progressive frames and yet we uh, still only have one commentary track well if you'd been around last week uh ac4 is new technology coming in from dolby which gets around that mark because then you can choose exactly what you want in terms of your audio streams, basically. So you could just li- listen to the crowd if you wanted, or you can have you have it in Spanish, Italian, whatever. Um, choose your different um, commentary teams. Have a fan commentary or listen to the BBC or listen to Five Live or whatever. I mean, that technology is coming. It should be quite good. That will be an comes. absolute game changer for me. Yeah, <laughs> really will. I I swear more at football commentators than at anyone else. <laughs> I have to say, I mean, I do hope this option is exploited with the enthusiasm that it so richly deserves. So you can have men in pub commentary. <laughs> um, it, 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 I mean, uh, the the other one that always struck me is uh, you'd probably obviously it would be expensive, so you'd have only do it for significant events. You'd have to have commentary by someone that greatly dislikes the sport. But has just been paid to paid to be there. So you know, David Mitchell <laughs> does the World Cup final, 
or so on and so forth. It's just like a team I don't care about. I would I would pay to listen. I really would pay to listen to that. I think that'd be quite genuinely quite funny. Right, anyway. Morrissey need... commentates on the Royal Gala. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, seriously, we need to move on because we're uh, yeah. rapidly running out of time. So that, anyway, that's... Uh, TV technology, there will be an article going up on the site uh, during the week, so keep your eyes open for that in the run-up to the Euros. And coming back next, we've got some movie news. Okay, Steve, so uh, films opening this Friday. Films opening this week, uh, and are not even opening on Friday. They're opening today, Monday, the day the podcast goes up, because... It's become quite common now for films where maybe they're not going to be critically successful. They get them out early uh, to get more box office for the opening weekend. So the, the technically the opening weekend of these films is going to be from Monday is it, to is the it following not, um, Sunday. Is it not half term? It's also half term, which yeah. might be another reason, because these are kid-friendly. So we've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Out of the Shadows, which is the second of the rebooted Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series. Um Produced by Michael Bay, so that gives you a good idea of what to expect. Although it might be worth going to see just for the sight of Megan Fox in a schoolgirl outfit. And um, Warcraft, the beginning, which is obviously the film adaptation of the Warcraft game. Directed by Duncan Jones, um, son of David Bowie, uh, who made the excellent Moon and the pretty good Source Code. Um, he's a big gamer and a big fan of this game, which is why he's done the film. I've seen the trailers for it, and uh, whilst it looks quite faithful to the game... <laughs> I can't say that it's something I'd be queuing up to see personally. Um, maybe you have to be there. But, uh, but you, you, I, I would have hoped for something a bit more interesting from Dave Duncan Jones because he's done two very interesting films already and this seems like a retrograde step for him. But um, That's quite damning a, from you with a free cinema pass. You don't even have to pay to see it. Mm. And well, never- I, I tell you what, I've, I'm struggling this year. A, there haven't been that many films I wanted to go and see. And the films I do want to go and see aren't at my local cinema. Money Monster, not playing my local cinema, which is annoying. Not showing the nice guys, which I wanted to go and see next week. And um, so, you know, I'm, they are, of course, showing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Warcraft. But I don't really want to go and see either of them, even for nothing. Although I have got the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the one before this. On, on Blu-ray because it had a Dolby Atmos soundtrack. <laughs> That's not the original one. The original one. No, no. I meant of this reboot as opposed to the previous uh, films. Yeah, the, the previous Ninja Turtles. I've um, never seen the 1990 version, but I do own the uh, tie-in music with Snap uh, <laughs> on seven-inch single. So uh, you know, not all bad. And it's got a really bizarre B-side like Splinter's Tail, which is just. It's like I actually, prog rap. I, I actually remember that. I remember that. I, I'm sure I had that. I'm sure I had the 12 inch to beat your 7 inch. Well, what can that I say? Vaguely sexual, but what were you, did you re- regularly put it into your DJ sets? Bit of you know, RTLE <laughs> power. So I'm, so. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure it got a, a few plays here and there. <laughs> I'm sure it did. So anyway, that's your choices for cinema this week. Um, okay, so Blu-ray have- releases. What can we go and buy? Uh, this week on Blu-ray, actually, we've got Goosebumps, which I have already seen. Um, um, again, bought it on US Blu-ray because it's got a Dolby Atmos soundtrack, an excellent Dolby Atmos soundtrack, I have to add. Uh, and I really enjoyed this. I didn't know much about the Goosebumps series of books. Um, there is a whole series of kids' books, um, you know, and they're quite quite fun, um, you know, horror tales with things like, uh, you know, werewolves and vampires and, and Invisible Boy and this sort of stuff. And... Um, very popular children. I'd never heard of them, but but um, but the film condenses all of these various books into a single story. So it introduces the whole characters. The, the concept is quite simple. There's all these uh, books that the author's written, and if you open them up, the characters inside become alive. It was really good fun. It has Jack Black in it um, playing the author, and uh, yeah, it was it's one of those kind of uh, fun, slightly scary kids horror movies, if you know what I mean, and um, very much in the in the vein of Krampus, which we, we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, and it had a bit of an 80s um, uh, sort of vibe to it, but but with modern day effects. And, and I thought it was great fun. And it has got a really good soundtrack. There's a whole bit when the, the invisible boy is on top of the car and, and the, they use the overhead speakers for his footsteps banging around above you, which is really great. So uh, that one I quite enjoyed. Worth picking up if you like a, a good Atmos soundtrack as well. Uh, we've got the Peanuts movie. Uh, in this country, outside of the States, at least, it's called Charlie Brown and Snoopy, the Peanuts movie, just to make it clear what it entails. But it's the Peanuts movie that uh, I have got an Ultra HD Blu-ray. I haven't watched it yet. Uh, um, Ride Along 2, sequel to Ride Along with Ice Cube and Kevin Hart. And 
Ride Along was pretty generic. Ride Along 2 got, got really, really, really bad reviews from, I think it was Kimari who went to see that game, like two or three out of ten. So not great. Uh, and big release, as far as I'm concerned, is the remastered um, Independence Day on Blu-ray, which comes out this week. Yeah, but you're not going to buy the Blu-ray because you've no, got, you got to get the UHD. And then yeah. It's coming out on Ultra HD Blu-ray in the States, at least, uh, in a week's time. Um with a DTSX soundtrack, so that's the one for me. But yeah, I'm quite I'm quite looking forward to watching this again um, because I did really enjoy it back then. I can't believe it's been over 20 years. Um, but obviously, this is coming out to time with the release of Independence Day Resurgence, which comes out I think on the 24th of June, so in a couple of weeks after that. Who knew that Apple Mac could uh, interface with alien technology? Yeah, I know, amazing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So ahead of its time. <laughs> I still quite like the film though. Actually, um, like we've managed to secure childcare, so um, it's the first film I'm off to see <laughs> since Star Wars. <laughs> um, make of that what you will. Uh, as I said last time, I, I, I have no doubt it's going to be awful, but I think it'll be enjoyably awful. And just to correct things from last week, uh, seemingly Will Smith was offered the role. He just wanted humongous amounts of cash, um, so they said no, yeah, seemingly. That's fair enough. Right, okay, um, what can we do Ultra HD-wise, or is there nothing to report there is, this week? There isn't a massive amount of news this week. Obviously, as I just mentioned, Independence Day um, is coming out on Ultra HD Blu-ray uh, next week in the States. The Peanuts movie is already available, if that's something that interests you as far as Ultra HD Blu-ray goes. What is probably the big news of the week um, in terms of technology is that the first triple-layer Ultra HD Blu-rays have come out in Japan. There's been a couple of releases, Japanese films, but they use triple-layer discs, which um, up until now haven't been used, they've all been double-layer discs so far. So that's important news primarily for longer films. So if you're thinking about something like uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Titanic. on Ultra HD Blu-ray, you're going to need a triple-layer disc. So that's that's a key piece of technology that's now in place, which What's is good news. That, that's 100, it's 100 gig. Is that right? hmm. Yeah, 100 gig. So this, it's, I think it's 33, 66, and 99, yeah. Will, will, will we be able to fit my Canada video on here? One of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, okay, let's move things on because uh, swiftly we're rapidly running out of time because we're talking about TV technology. But Star Wars news, we always have a bit of Star Wars news. So um, what do we have this week? Well, um, unofficially it's been confirmed. There's been some... Um, how, early... how can you unofficially confirm? Well, there was <laughs> basically um, re- publishers have been have been getting the early, early examples of various books that are being released at time with Rogue One when it comes out in December. And obviously these, these get released a lot earlier so they can print them and everything. And um, some examples of some of the books that are being created, you know, these sort of technical manuals and tie-in books. And there's all these various designs and equipment's going to be in Rogue One and some of the pictures involve Darth Vader. So Darth Vader, it's, it's been rumoured and, and semi-confirmed for quite a while that he's going to be appearing in Rogue One. And it would make sense, given when it's set and where it's set, that he would be there because he was clearly involved with the construction of the Death Star anyway. And it's pretty easy to include him as long as you've got James Osborne to do the voice. You just need a big bloke in a suit. So yes, Darth Vader should be in in Rogue One, which is, I think, great news. Well, uh, he, is, he is the lead uh, in terms of trying to find the plans, isn't he? Because that is the whole opening yes, of A New Hope. So. Yeah, so... <laughs> I mean, really hard to make it without him, frankly. Um, and obviously a lot easier than resurrecting um, uh, Peter Cushing. So, yes, a bit like um, Yoda being in Episode 8 is the obvious solution to a problem when you the other actor you could choose is dead. Uh, so Darth Vader in Rogue One. <laughs> Episode 8 apparently will feature a big fight between Jedis, well, at least Luke and um, Rey, and um, and some Knights of the Ren with uh, Kylo Ren. They've been shooting in Ireland for the last few weeks, so um, there's rumours of that going on, which sounds like quite exciting. I'll be up for that. Uh, and one for you, Ed. The Force Awakens is coming out on vinyl. Uh, with Hold- Yeah, I saw. I just, I've re-listened to the soundtrack on Tidal. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's a lovely, lovely piece of packaging, but again, I'm about buying records to listen to, um, well, with the exception of where I am last weekend, um, and um, it's a lovely thing, but I, I just don't, didn't, wasn't that excited by the score to actually buy it, so uh, so yes, and as I say, I, I did a fairly expensive error on Saturday. I was at a record fair and there was a copy of Fatboy Slim's uh, You've Come a Long Way Baby on vinyl. Now, it's not a very common album um, and it was knackered. It still is knackered. I I mean, I negotiated the bloke down from 25 quid (laughs) to about to 18 
which did make it the cheapest copy in the UK. But obviously, I played it and it's knackered. So it's like, mm, on earth do I do with this? So I've got to got to reconcile that. So, but um, I mean, it's good to see it. I mean, it must have said you can buy. There was a, a box set of the original six films uh, with their soundtracks on vinyl. Um, I was I was very tempted to buy that just to own it. it it was a beautiful thing, but also it must be said whatever the uh, whatever the limitations of the uh, of the prequels, uh, their scores were, were were genuinely good, and they they complemented the, uh, the 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 original three films very nicely. So that's all good. I mean, I say there's nothing wrong with the Force Awakens score, but it's not that to me it didn't I, have any. I think it's a grower. I, I didn't I, like I, them. I really, I really, really it. like it. I think Ray's themes the the highlight. Yeah. Totally, some, um, some good stuff on it. Yeah, really good. And the vinyl with the holograms, or the Falcon and the Tie Fire. Well, that always <laughs> reminds me of um, the Spitting Image album, which had a, a it, all of it with, uh, with one exception. All of it was just stuff from the, the from the TV programs. But at the end of side one, it goes. Uh, we'd like you know, we'd like to report an error with this record. It it says in the center of this record, you can see a hologram of Ronald Reagan. Uh, this is a mistake, and it should say in the centre of this record, you can see a hole. The words "ogram" of Ronald Reagan were added without our consent, which I thought was was quite nice. But obviously, if you listen to it on any other format than uh, than see, uh, than vinyl, it didn't make a huge amount of sense. So there. I, I guess you had to be there, Ed. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and uh, just another thing that has started it's into its third episode now is the Star Wars show, which is it's a bit light, but. There's been some interesting things there, and I love their theme tune as well. I think the, the way they do the theme tune and the, the voice Yoda outside ILM in San Francisco, I think, is brilliant opening sequence. Of it. Um, but it is a bit light in terms of actual details. But interesting that they're doing that now and uh, having their own weekly Star Wars show. So if you need Star Wars stuff, the, you'll find it on YouTube in the Star Wars channel. Anybody else watched it? No. Yes, I did watch it. And I agree, it is a bit lightweight in places. I could do without the chewy mum or whatever her name is. That's really annoying. Um, in the interview Duncan Jones, though, was quite quite nice. Obviously, he was plugging um, Warcraft, but he's a massive Star Wars fan talking about that. I love the way that whenever they talk to Duncan Jones, or if he's ever mentioned, no one ever mentions the fact he's David Bowie's son. It's just like, you know, he's just... Which I, I kind of respect the fact he's not called himself David Bowie or Zoe Bowie, as he was unfortunately named as a kid. And um, you know, just trying to make his career on his own back, but but you know, it's, it, it's quite cool to think David Bowie was your dad. <laughs> worth mentioning occasionally. I'll keep watching the show though, just in case there's any nice little tidbits as we as we move into Rogue One. I, I, is, I um, think six months away now. Yeah, mm. there's some uh, nice little Easter eggs in there as well, with backgrounds and models and stuff on mm. show and that kind of thing. So it's interesting to watch for that. Okay, so that's Star Wars news. Um, has there ever been a decent adaptation of a video game as a film, Mark? Um, a, a lot of people like the Resident Evil films, um, and I, I think as a medium, it works better when it's translated to animated films. So you had Street Fighter Two, the animated movie. You've had a an anime version of Tekken. There was a decent prequel to the Dead Space series, but in terms of live action, um, they all tend to be fairly awful. Um, although the original kind of terrible hammy street fighter and I, and I think um the original mortal Kombat. i think they made decent money um but other than that live action seems to be a bit um yeah a bit hit and miss so but you've got the the assassin's creed movie coming out that's got a decent cast michael fassbender in it um so it'll be interesting to see how that does i've got to say i'm going down the list that was provided on the runner order and obviously we'll, we'll put this into the uh in the thread that goes with the podcast as well but um i'm looking down the list of games that have been made into movies and how many of them have i seen and probably resident evil is the only one out of that list i've seen a depressingly large number of them actually yeah um, but we, we kind of knew that was going to be the case although Steve. i'm also surprised the list is as short as it is i, I could have sworn there were more adaptations but actually there aren't that many i mean relatively speaking and some of them haven't been adapted yet, although they are in, on the way. I mean, Assassin's Creed, Mark just mentioned with Michael Fassbender, that that could be interesting. Uncharted, I mean, that, that's that's currently lined up to come out in 2017. Amazing, they haven't done that already, given it's you know it's kind of got an Indiana Jones feel to it, and action adventure seems quite. It should be something that's relatively easy to adapt to a film. Sonic the Hedgehog's looking like it might be coming in 2018. Again, I'm amazed they haven't done a Sonic the Hedgehog Hedgehog yet. But looking across the list. You know, I've got, I own Wing Commander. Laura you Croft, own Wing Commander? Yeah. 
Yeah, I got that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Say like, that with pride. Uh, Final Fantasy Spurs with them. I've got that on Blu-ray. I've never watched it. I've watched like the first five minutes of them just see what the picture quality was like and they never got much further. Uh, it, is, it manages to be both really stupid and breathtakingly dull at the same time. It, it's a, In many regards, it's a singular piece of filmmaking, just not a good singular piece of filmmaking. <laughs> um, anyway, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, Cradle of Life, got that. Um, oh, Need, Need for Speed, I've seen that. I saw that on the plane. I thought it was the most <laughs> reprehensible piece of crap I've ever seen. I mean, none of the characters you like. I do. I do have to say, I will come clean here. I actually really like the Resident Evil films. I've got them all, and I really enjoy them. I mean, I think it's it's telling that that list begins in 1993 with Super Mario Bros., <laughs> which was terrible, and it's not like it particularly picked up at any point from there. Yeah. Well, I mean, you just have to look at the casting, don't you, on that one? I don't know. It got some bigger names into it than many of the masterpieces on this. Uh, Street Fighter, um, did, did, was Kylie Minogue not in that one? Yeah. Yeah, there she was. I've just bought Hitman Agent 47 because that's Ultra HD. Oh, um, um, Mortal Kombat, doesn't that have um, Christopher Lambert being completely incomprehensible indeed, as usual? Yeah. Yes. And then Doom. I mean, Doom, again, has actually was, got some quite reasonable actors just looking so sheepish is doom, is the, doom the rock is the rock in doom i believe so maybe i should get that then yeah <laughs> it's got dexter Soul. dexter fletcher and um uh carl urban who i normally have quite a lot of time for but it's uh you're selling it to me now it sounds awesome <laughs> it sounds awesome i can assure you it's not i quite enjoy prince of persia actually um sounds of time i thought that was all that's quite good fun I, do you know what? I think done correctly with the right people and the right director, I think you could make an absolutely brilliant Monkey Island film. <laughs> I oh, genuinely well, that's a good do. Point. But it would need to be done by someone completely in, you know, happily immersed in, in the whole construct. I think it could be really... That would really... have to be almost like a Monty Python film. Correct, yes. So come on, Mark, what's your suggestion for, you know, Game Shenmue, which... duck racing, <laughs> forklifts. Forklift, yes. No, that's a good idea. Goat throwing. What's that game where you throw goats? That looked quite good fun. Goat simulator. <laughs> no. Or oh, that's something different. <laughs> I think almost anything can be made into a decent film. I think it's it's a question of where the people who are making these things, who are translating them for the screen, come from. This is why kind of the Warcraft film might be a success because you've got a kind of a pedigree there in film beforehand. Whereas with a lot of things, it's been made by kind of um, passionate gamers who've tried. You Ball was a guy who made House, <laughs> House of the Dead. Rain. Alone, yeah, Alone in the Dark, yeah, as you said, Blood Rain, Postal, Far Cry. And some people said he kind of poisoned the well. well isn't but, he regarded as the worst director since he, Ed Wood? So yes, I think he's... he's yeah, I think he's he's who was he offered to fight? Is it Michael Bay or someone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Several <laughs> times, um, he's called himself a genius. He, genuinely mad at this point, um, and you know, it's people now associate kind of video game adaptations with being terrible. I think the problem is they kind of languish with poor scripts for a long time. They end up in development hell. They don't get funding, and for most games with a kind of because of the nature of games traditionally to this point has been to have a strong aesthetic because consoles up to this point haven't been able to really kind of evoke truly photorealistic graphics. Um, to replicate that in film form, you need a decent budget. And so if you try and kind of half-arse it, you end up with your kind of, you know, like your live-action Street Fighter and stuff like that, which just look poor. Um, but now that now that you're getting you know stuff like Uncharted, then it, that kind of translates just naturally. And things like Assassin's Creed, you just think, well, all you need to do is is you know pick the right sets for the the historical settings, and you're virtually there anyway. And that's the appeal of the games. Have you seen the uh, trailer for Assassin's Creed? I have. It's I, an I, interesting I thought... concept of how they're getting Fassbender into different time periods, presumably within the same film. It's a sort of a time travel aspect, isn't it? So it's. Yeah, I, I thought the, the the trailer kind of shot itself in the foot, though, with number one, the music, and number two, that no one can ever mention the phrase the Spanish Inquisition without thinking of <laughs> it, it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, okay, let's flip this on its head just to wrap it up, Mark. Um, what films 
have translated well into video games. Um, well, your obvious choice would be Goldeneye. Yeah. You know, take source material, build level design around that, utilizing the elements, but don't try and follow exactly kind of the script, you know, point one to, you know, point two all the way through. Um, but there are some games that are some films that kind of feel like games. If you look at something like The Raid, that felt like, you know, like someone had made a film of a video game, someone Edge going through levels. Edge of Tomorrow or Source Code, thinking of Duncan Jones again. Uh, if you watch Source Code, it, again, it resets. It's, uh, it's a very similar concept. And um, you, know, you could definitely make Edge of Tomorrow into a game very easily, couldn't you? The entire concept of it is very game-like. Um, uh, and and if, if that had been an adaptation of a game, it would be easily the best game adaptation ever because it's a great film. But yeah, that, 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 would, that would probably work in the other direction quite effectively. We sometimes watch some of these animated movies and you can th- see the actually thinking of the video game and, and some of the sequences. I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I've been to several with the, my kids and thinking, oh, no, that's going to be in the video game. That bit's going to be in the video game. they take that to the next level with the Matrix sequels where the Matrix reloaded and Matrix Revolutions were shot back to back, but also the Matrix, Enter the Matrix, the game was designed, it turned out to be a crap game, but it was designed at the same time and they shot actual cutscenes for the game that actually tie in with the storyline of the, of, the, of the three Matrix movies as well. Yeah, Which I think uh, included on the Blu-ray. No, for me, um, there is only one film when it comes to the Matrix, and and the rest of that universe it doesn't <laughs> exist as far as I'm concerned. Disappears of its own ass, doesn't it? Yep, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and on that bombshell, I've, if you've got any suggestions in terms of games that you want to see made in movies or movies which would make great games in there, you can obviously leave your comments in the thread underneath this podcast. But that is it for this week. So my thanks to Steve Withers. Bodacious. Ed Selly. Ah, so the rat, it has a name. Mark Hodgkinson. Where did they come up with this stuff? And Mark Burry. Ninja Vanish. <laughs> I didn't even get it. What did he say? Ninja Vanish. Does that mean he's gone now? <laughs> he's just thrown down one of those percussion caps. Like, walked out <laughs> run off. Yep. If I have to explain it and walk back into the room, it doesn't really work, does it? <laughs> All right, let's just... Guys, that was my exit. Okay, drop the mic. Off you go. Right, don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, bookmarkaviforums.com for latest reviews, news and video, and of course, leave us those five-star ratings on iTunes. You've got a whole month now. Go and leave it. Uh, it has to be five stars, and we'll read your name out on the podcast. Can't say for another than that. I'm Phil Hinton. Thanks very much for listening. And don't forget, we will see you again on the 20th of June for the normal podcast. And in between that, we have um, the two interviews. And when we come back, we're also coming back on the same day as Mark and Steve share a birthday. And of course, England will have exited the Euros by then in shame. We'll see you when we come back.